Hello, and welcome to the Vulnerability Junkies podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jamie. On this podcast, we talk about the scary, vulnerable parts of our personal and professional growth, our identities as second-generation Asian Canadians, and talking about our feelings. When you're learning something new, do you dive straight into the deep end or wade in slowly? Trial by fire or slowly build the heat? On today's episode, we discuss our approaches to learning new things, Kevin's shonen mentality, and how we want to evolve our learning styles. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Hey. We are live. Hey, Kevin, I have a question for you. Okay, speak. Ask Wh- a question. Why are we friends, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Right into the D-Vent. <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah. Sweating profusely. Okay, the first thing that comes to mind is an overly large amount of similar interests. Yeah. Um, we like anime. We like lifting. We like playing badminton. We like, like urban dance. So, correct. yeah, there's a lot of overlapping interest there for sure. But I also feel like extreme amounts of introspection is a huge part of it as well. Cool. Yes. Similar values of which one is constant improvement as applied to the self. Yes. Sometimes healthy amounts, sometimes unhealthy amounts, but always some attempted growth. Yes. Yes. That's the goal anyway. (laughs) Indeed. I feel like when we first started talking, a lot of it really was just about all these shared subject matter, but really specifically, like, how do you get better at these things and like how you approach these things? And I remember one of the, one of the things I found really funny about you right out of the gate is that whenever you decide you're going to do anything, you find some way to throw yourself like really far into the deep end. And this is just like not how I operate. Do you want to talk a little bit about like, like, why do you think that you are this way? Like, what, what do you think compels you to always do the most extreme version of something in order to learn about it? Okay, first caveat is I don't necessarily think this is the best way to approach life, nor do I really recommend this to anyone. At least part of it is cultural. Between watching a lot of shonen animes growing up and a lot of old Chinese dramas even, there's this kind of concept that like the way that the protagonist overcomes their I guess, chief struggle or like achieves strength or greatness in whatever their endeavor is, is by just working harder than everyone else. And in very specifically, their ability to go through and endure harsh training for longer or harder than everyone else. Therefore, they are very successful. And I think that's where it comes from for me. I'll never forget the scene from Naruto and Rockley's doing his, I don't know, like, 10,000 push-ups and like 10,000 jumping jacks or whatever. And there's this training montage where he does it. And then it starts off with at 100 or at 10,000 and it rapidly progresses to like 100,000 or whatever. Yeah. And uh, that was inspirational for me as a kid. And unfortunately, that is uh, how I learned to approach difficulties (laughs) and like growth in my life (laughs) since then. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you have a much more healthy outlook on this. Yeah, I think that like mine, my outlook, okay, so my my outlook is that I try to stay in my stretch zone for everything. So there's this whole idea of like, you you don't want to be doing things you already know how to do, but you also don't want to always be in a state of overwhelm. Although Kevin has apparently demonstrated that you can indeed grow from being always overwhelmed. It just isn't necessarily always the most fun. But I, I just try to keep putting things in front of myself where I don't know how to do it. And I just keep doing that over and over and over again. Uh, in different domains. And I think that sometimes I don't 
push as hard as I probably could, or like I expect things to be more comfortable than they ultimately need to be for me to grow. So for some of these things, I just had to eventually push myself and say, look, this thing is going to suck when I do it. Like for instance, getting more used to driving is just sitting in discomfort for prolonged periods of time until suddenly it becomes subconscious. That wasn't like a, how do I make it fun the whole time? That was, how do I make this tolerable? So it kind of depends on the domain, but, but yeah, let's talk a bit about what this looked like in different domains. So we both at different points have gotten pretty into urban dance. So Kevin, what's your relationship with that? And how did you approach getting better? I first found out about it through watching ABDC, yeah. America's Best Dance Crew. And back when I was in high school, actually not even high school, like elementary school, I think. And then had a brief encounter there where I spent a summer doing a series of classes at the local dance studio. Parents pulled me out of it because they were like, focus on studying. And so I didn't really get a chance to re-explore that until I graduated college, moved down to the Bay Area where there's a pretty prolific dance scene. And at that point, I decided, okay, I'm finally free from parental and school expectations. I could finally start exploring this interest of mine. And my approach to this was I'm going to try and just overwhelm myself and throw myself <laughs> into the deep end as fast as possible because my theory was that is what's going to help me grow and learn the fastest with the goal of becoming the best dancer possible. So what it ended up doing was signing up for these things called performance workshops where they're basically 10 week intensives where you do two to three hours of, of class per week with a group of people basically form an impromptu dance crew and then have this recital performance at the end. I signed up for two of them at the same time. And I specifically signed up for two that were intermediate advanced <laughs> level workshops where I was like, I'm just going to go right in and hopefully that works out for the best. Yeah. That's how, how did that work out for you, Kevin? There was a critical juncture point where, as expected, I was the worst person in the room by like a decent margin. And at some point during the course of the workshop, I basically got called out for it pretty seriously. There was this moment where we had learned maybe 50 to 60% of the piece and the teacher was like, okay, everyone's going to now practice performing their parts of the dance in front of everyone else. And it was meant to be like half supportive so that the team could show support for each other, as well as a, a slight critique so that we could get individualized notes for how we could improve. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, super nervous, never performed before a group of people. I'm just focusing on, okay, don't overthink it. Just leave it all out on the dance floor. Don't think about what happens next. And so I go, I do it. I remember like maybe 50% of it at most, but people are like trying to be supportive. Yay, feels okay, I guess. Finish, I sit down and then the teacher basically looks at me and he's like, I don't know what to say because there were so many things wrong that I don't have enough time to tell you anything. Because if say, for example, there's 10 things wrong, I only have time to maybe fix three things right now. And if I did that, then it would just make the other seven more pronounced. And that was it. That was a big kind of like soul crushing moment. I was very sad, basically on the verge of tears by the end of at when that happened. And then I woke up the next day and I was like, this is not how it's going to end. Every day after work from that point on, I practiced by myself for one to three hours every day for the next two or three weeks, call it, in order to catch up. Come the performance date, I think I got it to the point where I didn't stick out that much anymore. And I guess it was okay relative to all of my intermediate and advanced peers. You took time off work too, didn't you? I did. I took one or two sick days <laughs> for purely for the purposes of wake up, eat breakfast, go practice, 
eat some lunch and then go practice again. Those days were probably like four to five hours of practice. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, necessary though. And I, a part of me appreciated the need and the pressure to become better. And yeah, for better or for worse, I think that was a really good growth period for me. I definitely got way better, particularly at retention and being able to follow class and pick up choreography quickly. But yeah, that's interesting recent case study. Yeah. Okay. Well, you had this teacher really like laying into you or at least giving this really harsh critique. Can you like walk me through the emotional arc that was going on for you while you were hearing this? Like, when you're going home afterwards, you woke up. What was the what was the internal dialogue happening? So right after it happened, yeah, or even like during. I think during it was just mostly overwhelming. Feels bad. It was like ninety percent thinking about it. Wow, this feels really bad to be told that you are very bad at what you were trying to become very good at. And then ten percent of me was like, wow, I haven't felt this way in a while. This is refreshing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that over time, what happened is the scales switched on that, where as I was leaving, I basically just wanted to disappear. I just remember leaving that practice, which by the way, was like an extra practice. We were Classic. doing offsite kind of thing. Yeah. I just remember wanting to run home, but didn't want to actually run because then everyone would see that I'm running home. So internally I was running home, yeah. but externally I was pacing towards home as fast as possible. Yeah. Do you remember what you did to emotionally recover when you, you got home and you just like, I'm going to practice immediately? Or are you like, oh my God, I need to eat a tub of ice cream? Or what was the emotional management strategy at that point? It was mostly internal. There was no immediate release. It was pressure building in a way. What generally goes on in my head is I feel really bad about myself. And eventually I'm just like, I would like to not feel bad about myself anymore. And the way that I see that is, okay, in order for that to be true, I need to improve and become better. And then at that point, all this feels bad turns into a mixture of like anger and I don't want to say like self-hatred but just man I really suck and I really don't want to suck and that kind of just turns into fuel that I like burn off to then grind yeah and like obsess and focus on this one thing yeah so, yeah and then do you remember what the performance was like I still had a sense that like I wasn't great for sure but I was way more confident about it just by virtue of how many hours I had sunk into it. Yeah, the other good news is I think my fellow peers in the group also watched this go down. So I think there was a part of it where people related a little bit and, and a bunch of them helped in dance, we call it cleaning, basically giving each other helpful tips on how to improve. And several of my, my teammates helped me out there as well. A mix of all that effort, I think by the end of it, I was feeling good. I was very content with the fact that I had literally put in as much as I possibly could have. So the performance was mostly like a nice little release moment of there's nothing more I could do. So I'm just going to leave it all out there. Yeah. Yeah, man. Too tight. <laughs> so, so like the first time I heard this story, I remember just being completely mind blown that Kevin, that you'd have this kind of reaction because my, my journey along getting somewhat into choreography, it looked very different. I had a similar kind of event, but the outcome was very different. Like I started into dance in kind of a similar way. I watched a ton of YouTube stuff back in, I don't know, like 2000. I was five-ish, watched a lot of America's Best Dance Crew, and So You Thinking Dance. But then I, I never really got into choreography. When I was at University of Waterloo, and I tried to show up one time for the hip-hop club there. And man, I my memory for a lot of stuff isn't amazing, but I still remember exactly how I felt in that class. So I spent most of my life generally being near the top of my class in, in a lot of different endeavors in life. Or even if I wasn't the top, I would at least be mediocre. But in this class, I was undoubtedly the worst person in the class. 
and my body just couldn't handle it. I, 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 remember I walked out halfway through the class because otherwise I think I would have actually started bawling in the middle of the class. So after that experience, I was so shell-shocked that I basically didn't touch choreography for four years after that. It was scarring. It was, yeah, it was pretty scarring. So this is why whenever uh, I started trying to pursue something for, for growth, I'm like really wary of the understanding what my limits of stretch are. But another perspective on this is maybe the problem was that I didn't commit hard enough. Like your situation, it wasn't just that he had, would have to leave the room. It's we, he would have to tell everyone there that you like formally quit. So maybe if I was in that situation, I would have been forced to stick it through and it would have been painful, but ultimately growth. But instead what happened for me is I waited until it was actually another performance workshop from the same teacher. And then Kevin and a couple other friends, they all said they were joining, including some friends that had even less dance experience than me. And at this point I had no excuse. I'm like, okay, if these friends are all going to take this thing on, then no matter how scared I am here, like I, I have these people support. I know that I have more experience here. I'm sure I can pull this together. And it, it was still really stressful, but having that support from friends made, made a huge difference for me. And it's, it is also just like really weird as someone that spent a lot of my life, like being among the high performers, suddenly just entering entire environments and just being like, okay, I'm gonna suck. I'm just gonna be bad at this. So like one of the things I, I'm just continually amazed at. <laughs> this is going to be a really weird kind of compliment, but I'm really impressed by, by Kevin, by like the, the way in which you're comfortable sucking at things. <laughs> and it's, it's not that you enjoy sucking at them, but it's that, that like you walk into situations with the assumption and then you actually are able to move past that. Whereas I think a lot of people, me included, in some situations, I walk in and I'm like, I suck. I'm like, ah, I think I'm done here. <laughs> like, I, I'm not good at this. But it seems like you're able to like really embody growth mentality, even in situations where there's like immediate negative reinforcement from the environment you're in. Yes, I think, I, I guess in a way that is a strength. So thank you. Increasingly, as I reflect on it though, I feel like, and this is why I think like finding this optimal stretch zone is long-term more healthy. Is it like, it's yes, I can cope and I can take these lemons and make lemonade out of them in a way, or it's you're in a, a situation where you're feeling like you suck and it hurts viscerally. And in a way, it's like very stressful. And at least within time boxed situations, for example, as in this dance example, like I knew that I only had three weeks left between like me and like the actual performance. I think in like short bursts, it can be helpful. But there's definitely a world where if you let, if you use this as your primary mode, I think that if you use this as your primary mode of motivation and how you think about growth, like you will burn yourself out so fast. I really think it's not sustainable and it is painful. <laughs> In the moment, yeah. you're like, because when I'm in this mode, I'm obsessed with this. I'm just like, wow, it really hurts and bothers me. It's a mixture of, I want to be good at this thing. And I'm very viscerally now told in my face that I suck at it. Mm. There's a little bit of that. And then there's also like a proving element to this too, of not just to myself, but proving to other people that like, like, this is not me. I can be better and not going to like, just let it be that way, which is, yeah, there's definitely energy there. And definitely you can take motivation from that. Yeah. But it's, it's all consuming. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. I, I hear you that it sounds like it's mostly useful in situations where it's more of a short term fuel. 100%. Because yeah. sometimes there's just a bar you're trying to get over. But if anything worth doing in life is, is a really long journey, it's like many years. And if the entire time during those years you're fueled by some sense of inadequacy and self hatred, it, it's not even about efficacy anymore. It's about why, what is the point of doing this thing if the predominant, emotion you get through a lot of this is self-hatred exactly 
So you need to find some way to make the process itself enjoyable rather than just being focused on raw efficacy. That is my current thinking. Yeah. But what's interesting, I think one thing I, I heard you say was that like this experience you had going through taking your first choreo class and then being scarred away and then not touching in for four years. Did you think that is what I guess taught you that you should find and stay within your stretch zone? Oh, interesting. I think this is one of those things where the story only really makes sense backwards. Like I can piece together how this came to fruition in different areas of my life. Like for some areas of my life, I recognized over time that my capacity was higher than I thought it was. And other areas I had to recognize that it was actually lower than I thought it was. So it, it's not that I came back to dance and I'm like, okay, last time I was scarred for this. So I need to dial in my, my stretch zone. It was more like, this is a thing I've always wanted to do. I've always been scared of doing it. And suddenly now there's an opportunity where because of the environment, I now feel really safe doing this thing. And from there, once I, I was in an environment where I, I felt safe, then I started thinking about how do I ramp this up? So after, after I did that workshop with those friends, I felt really supported doing it. I've done three more performance workshops since then. Two of them I did at the same time. So that was actually like a ramp up in intensity. And I also was just not quite as close friends with the people in those later ones as well. So it really felt like I'd take on more on my own. So I think that I've just noticed in a lot of areas of my life that for me, in order to do something sustainable, I need to, to find a way to really dip my toes in. But the key is not to just sit there with your toes in. You have to like ramp up as you recognize the, uh, the things that work for you and what you can tolerate. I, I think in many things in life, I probably haven't pushed as hard as I could to keep ramping that up. I'm about to do this in a more extreme way for language learning. So yeah, I guess I can talk about this like a couple of different elements of life. So I think the one area where I've always been good at this, while it was a focus of mine, was getting better at software engineering. And it's because my approach to it was always find a thing that I have intrinsic motivation in wanting to do. So build some project that is just a tool that is useful to me. Honestly, in high school, it was build things that I could show off to my friends. <laughs> and I would always choose things where I didn't know how to do it when I first started. So that was a kind of way of, of staying in my learning edge, staying in, the, in this kind of stretch zone where I wouldn't know off the top of my head the exact execution path to doing it. And if you just keep doing that exact thing over really long spans of time, you get really good at things. This is especially true if you're not following standard curriculums because it builds your confidence not only in doing the thing, but also in figuring out how to do strange things that are not handed to you as a series of instructions. But in other things in my life, I have been slowly ramping it up. So like the one that is most top of mind for me right now is language learning, where during COVID lockdown, while all my regular hobbies were dead, I couldn't play badminton, I couldn't go to dance classes, I couldn't just hang out with friends and have physical contact with anyone. So during that time, I decided, okay, I need a new thing to focus on. I've had this really long standing goal to learn Cantonese. How do I get into that? And I wanted to start dipping my toes into this and, and start to just see how much I can comfortably deal with. At the beginning, that was, I'm going to set up a call with a couple of friends, like once or twice a week. And I just have these scans of children's books. And the whole call is just going to be me pointing at things and then asking my friends, what do you call this thing? What do you call this thing? What do you call this thing? And that was like a really low effort way of doing it. It was safe in, in that it was really low intensity. It was only a couple times a week. It was with friends. The skill barrier to entry was really low. Like I wasn't massively overwhelmed material that I didn't understand yet. But then over time, I've ramped it up. So the next important thing I did was I found a private Cantonese teacher. So I found a teacher in Hong Kong through, through this website called italki. And then I stepped up to doing that. Initially, it was two times a week. And then I got to three times a week. And now I'm doing five hours a week. So I'm doing this every weekday right now. 
I think that if I had gone straight to the five hours, I would have been immediately overwhelmed. Like I would have just being uncomfortable every day is a lot. Being uncomfortable twice a week is okay. So over time, because I get more comfortable in the environment, it, it increases my capacity to take on more challenge. So it, it's kind of like funny. I notice when I'm trying to learn something now, I'm learning both the skills, but I'm also just learning how to be comfortable in the environment. And both of those things take time. So that's like my approach in these different realms. Like I, I know that you've also done some language learning stuff. And I feel like you probably did a little bit more like deep end jump in strategy. So how did you look at that? I think for me, I was more or less raised on Cantonese. I think my new language was learning Mandarin. My journey there was my parents put me into Mandarin class, Saturday school situation. I started that when I was maybe nine and I did it for seven or eight years. I think six or seven of those years, I like really didn't take it seriously. Yeah. I was just kind of <laughs> messing around, to be honest. Like the first three or four years was like, this is incredibly painful. I'm only here because my parents are insisting that I have to go to these classes. And it's literally like three and a half hour classes on a Friday night. And you're just like, I would be rather doing so many other things right now. But eventually at some point I decided to actually give it a shot and try. One of my pivotal learning moments was oh, actually more context. So as I went into high school, one of the things I realized was actually you can do language credits. So I could take school on the weekends still, but they would be like certified by the local school board. And so I could keep doing what I was essentially doing right now, but also get free high school credits. Um, I was like, okay, that seems like a good idea. For some reason, so actually more context, there's, so there's, I guess, one level of Mandarin that you could take essentially for like freshman, sophomore, junior and senior year level. And then between those, you could either identify as someone that was a native speaker or a non-native speaker because they wanted to like meet you at your level of proficiency. Yours truly decided to opt in for, first of all, to identify as a native speaker, despite not actually being a native speaker. <laughs> and to skip a grade. There's no fucking way I would take this approach. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that happened. So why? Do you remember when you did that, what your reasoning was? I really don't know. I was caught in kind of a weird in-between because I technically had done lessons, like gone to class for four or five years at that point. And I also was doing Cantonese class concurrently on top of that. Oh man. And I had the like home speaking context. And then in these classes, I'd have been writing and, and reading and doing dictation and all that stuff for a long time. So it was true that I definitely wasn't entirely a, a non-native speaker because there's a lot of overlap, like verbally, Cantonese manner are different, but the written characters are very similar. Even between learning, because I was also learning both the traditional and simplified version of the written uh, Chinese at, at, at the same time. So I was kind of on the middle. And so we were just like, all right, well, I guess like you can either round down or round up and probably rounding up is better for learning. And then I really escaped me why we did the, oh, I think we did the, the grade skip as well, because on paper, the school administrators looked at this and they're like, this guy's been taking class for four or five years. It basically just expected me to be way better based off of what I was on paper. And then I was just like, all right, whatever. It seems good. I was a, a terrible student throughout the entire thing, but I had this kind of magic moment. I was a high school freshman doing sophomore level native Mandarin. And then the year after that, I was technically a sophomore in, in high school doing junior level native Mandarin. At the end of that course, after spending an entire year being terrible, like during class, you have dictation, you have to write some stuff. There's oral practice. 
And so people, at some point, they gauge like how good you are at the subject matter. Mm. And I just remember at the end of it, I clearly identified as like the bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. Like I would need help for even the most basic things. We had a volunteer TA at that point. I would go to him for like, all the things, regularly like failing assignments, regularly failing dictations and stuff because I didn't really know anything. But one of our last assignments for the year was an oral exam where you, we would have to write and then act out like a 10-minute skit, okay. which has been insane, right? Yeah. 10 You're minutes like, is a lot of content. It's a lot of content. And so like you have partners, right? So it's most people were like groups of two or three. And so it's not like you had to talk for the entire time. I think they gave us like several scenarios to to choose from right like one was like an interview and they're like hey, here's the topic go be creative and write a script and then just deliver it and you had to be memorized essentially a small play i got paired with the ta because they were like okay worst kid in the class this boy needs help he needs help we're gonna give him the, the guy that like is basically the pro right and for some reason or another i decided that between having a slight at the same time like i had been like I'd done a little bit of acting in like the high school play. And I had confidence in my regular oratory, like in English skills. And for some reason, this specific combination of assignment inspired me to really try hard and go for it. And yeah, I ended up doing it pretty well. I scripted it based off of a bunch of different Chinese dramas that I was watching at the time. And I would just pick up key phrases that, that people would use and then use that to build the scaffold. My jokes all landed, everyone laughed. I got creative with it where we were doing an interview where I was the interviewee and then I would have these moments where I would clap and then go into the monologue. It would be like if you were showing the audience what's going on in your head. I think one of the main jokes was the, the fact that the scenario was me in an interview, expecting it to be done in English and then being surprised that it was done in Chinese. Oh. Riff off the fact that like, yeah. I don't know anything about this language. Yeah, yeah. So I got to play off of that and that was nice. At the end of it, everyone was like, I didn't know you could speak Chinese. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know either. But yeah, I don't know. That was it. And that was for language learning. That was kind of my big confidence boost that then furthered my like interest in the language. The next big crazy jump was actually during quarantine, back when Clubhouse was popping off. I decided to join some Mandarin speaking Clubhouse rooms where it's all fluent speakers. Half of them are calling in from China. I yeah. only understood 20% of what they were saying. The only way I'm going to make myself engage is if I actually try and speak. So. Yeah, I raised my hand. They brought me on stage. They're all native Mandarin speakers. And then I just try my my darn bestest oh to articulate myself. And then I just remember like sweating. And I like, I all I had to do was ask a question really. Yeah. It took maybe like a minute of me trying to ask this question. And then at some point, someone was you could just speak English, man. It's fine. One of the, one of the people on stage was actually speaking English. I just remember that was like a big punch in the gut. Just, uh, okay, this is a... Back to reality, buddy. Yeah. yeah so this is another good example of the divergence between us. Because I, I, everything you said up to that point, I can understand. Ignoring the fact where you skipped a grade, because I also definitely would not do that. If I was in a class where I was struggling, if there's a presentation coming up and I had to stand up in front of everyone, having those kind of public stakes definitely motivates me. And I, I get it. So for all the things that are thrust upon you, once you commit, I understand. And I think even the idea of listening into these clubhouse channels to, to get a sense. But the... the the leap that is unfathomable to me is while listening, I understand 20%. You know what I should do? I should participate in this conversation. That is just baffling to me that you would step into that. Why? I think it was another one of those moments where I'm like, the best way to learn is to throw yourself into the deep end. In hindsight, it was like not wrong. It was motivating in a way. One of the things I really hate is not doing something because I'm afraid. Mm, yeah. And... In my mind, I was like, okay, this is an interesting thing to try. It's like, how often can you just press a button and then insert yourself into this like 
native speaking, very Chinese kind of environment. And like in normal kind of social settings, there's like a implicit vetting process or like by social norms, I think if people know that like everyone's a native speaker and you're not really proficient at it, they'll like switch channels and everyone will speak English yeah. instead. Like things like that would probably happen if it was a regular kind of social setting. So I was like, this is just a unique chance to be in a room that normally I would never be in, essentially, mm. just to see what would happen. And I remember getting up on stage was very nerve wracking. There actually, this is actually, the, the time that I did it was like the second time, actually. There was another room where I was also exact same situation, different people, but like same situation. And I had an internal debate of, oh, should I like try this thing? And then I basically chickened out. And I was very happy with the fact that I chickened oh, out. Okay. And so the second time this opportunity came up where I was just on Clubhouse and like I found one of these rooms, I was like, I'm doing this. So I did it and was calibrated very accurately. <laughs> And the truth was thrust into my face. But. <laughs> so I mean, like, uh, you mentioned that when you did this first time, we actually like, stepped up and started talking. And this person said, it's okay to talk in English. felt like, like a gut punch. Yeah. Having, a, like, when you got off stage, having just experienced that gut punch, were you still glad that you had done it? Or were 100%. you like, wow. 100%. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And I think part of it is, like, the, the choosing. I just remember, like, right after the moment, I literally, like, put the phone down, got off stage, left the call, and we just, like, just jumping up and down. And I was, like, <laughs> just, like shaking it off. Yeah, I was, like, oh, my God, that was so bad. But I was smiling. I was smiling. It was, like, oh, that was so terrible. But I was glad that I tried because I think a big part of language learning in particular is you have to get past that fear of uh, yeah. speaking. And I think for me, I was really glad that I at least pushed past that because the only way you get better is by practicing. Yep. And if you can show that in, in the most intimidating of environments – you can push through it and are still willing to speak and try to communicate. I, I just thought that would like boded very well for my yeah. future language development. It's like you're doing high altitude training. You're doing the most difficult environments that everything after that will seem a little easier. Is that yeah. right? That's also a big part of it as well. It's, yeah. There's also this concept I think in, in sports. It's like you, you train at 150% so that when you're actually playing, it's easy. Something yeah. Like Man, I... The whole idea of stepping into the, the, the kind of Ruben Clubhouse is still just like it's really upsetting to me. Oh, it's upsetting. <laughs> it's, it's upsetting as in like the idea of doing that. I think that I would not feel the same way afterwards. I think I would feel gut punched and like a little shell shocked. I wouldn't be that proud of the fact that I'd stepped up if I just stumbled really hard. I, I think one of the things that I've really grappled with over the last many years is when I don't want to do something, try to disentangle how much I don't want to do it because I'm scared versus how much I just actually don't want to do it. And I think in, in that context, it's a little easy for me to say, you know what, I actually just don't care that much about this thing. And I, I think there's some value in overcoming fear for the sake of overcoming fear, but I'm scared of enough things that I can focus it into the areas where I actually really do care about the outcome. So I, yeah, I kind of wonder if I tried to do that a couple of times, whether, whether I would just end up shell-shocked and then have the same four years without re-engaging kind of problem. So like the way in which I am throwing myself a little more in the deep end than I usually would is in, in August, I'm going to move to Hong Kong for a year. It's definitely possible to, to live in Hong Kong and only speak English, but I'm going to be surrounded with way more opportunities. So all these different situations you're talking about where a challenge presents itself, those challenges are going to present themselves all the time. And I hope I can start to embody more of, of your mentality around facing the challenge because you don't like backing down out of fear. So tell me more about that, right? Like, yeah, it's interesting also to connect the dots between you had this kind of shell shocking experience and there's part of you that from a meta perspective just wants to avoid that mm. going forward. But at the same time, 
you're still pushing yourself into arguably maybe even a deeper end than I was going for. You're literally going to upend and not just change your language setting for a minute. You're changing like everything, like your life context entirely. Yeah, this is like a very uncharacteristic move for me, which is part of what makes it interesting to me. I, I do something I'm going to ramp up in some ways. I was talking to my friends, Bill May, about this recently, where his approach to language learning was when he went to, to Spain for a while, his rule was literally no English. From the, the moment I stepped foot there, no English. So he changed his phone to Spanish. He said he was only going to talk to friends back home if they could speak Spanish with him. So that would be the most extreme deep end version of this. And I know I'm not going to do that because I, I know that if I did that, my emotional relationship with a learning journey would get so poisoned that I would just stop. That's not what happened to Bill. At the end of his trip, he ended up getting to the point where he would just walk into bars and start talking to people in Spanish, which is incredible to me. So I think that I'm just going to still find ways of ramping it up. It's just by being in that environment, the maximum point of that ramp up is way higher than I could reasonably get to while I'm here. If I choose to, it is possible for me to spend almost my entire day speaking Cantonese instead of English. So like the ramp is still, I think, going to be gradual, but it's just going to keep going up. And I'm doing like five hours a week right now. I'm going to try to get to 10 immediately from lessons when I get there. There'll be a lot more opportunities for doing language exchange when I'm there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is basically increasing the, the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. Moving the ceiling up. But you still plan on easing into it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do the most intense possible version of this. I, I, I could... As soon as I get there, try to find a full-time job where everyone always speaks Cantonese. And that would be a pretty extreme version of this. That sounds exciting to me, by the way. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I can totally see you doing that. Yeah, you should. It's, Kevin has like super deep affinity towards a lot of its Asian culture. has literally never set foot into Asia. So you should literally do this at some point. It just like go there or go to, go to some Mandarin-speaking area and just being like, all right, I work here full-time now. Bring the pain and I will grow through the pain. But for whatever reason, I just feel like I really thrive much more through uh, building up feedback loops of positive affirmation rather than feedback loops of, of negative. But yeah, I'm fully expecting the first while of this to be pretty uncomfortable and for me to just occasionally hit really awkward negative feedback loops. There's going to be times when I say things to people where I say not at all the thing that I thought I said, and I'm just going to have to deal with that being uncomfortable. But at least I can slow ramp that rather than zero to 100. I think about it as like my stretch zone increases yeah, yeah. as you put more time in. I think the reason why this is exciting for me is just because I have so much practice under my belt. Oh, yeah. In this specific scenario, I think in other scenarios that we can talk about, I think this definitely would be very unhealthy. And increasingly, I'm trying to not have this be my default approach. But for language in particular, in between those stories of doing the, the high school thing and then going on to Clubhouse, I've also had international language partners to practice with. And that was through an app called HelloTalk. Right. And the big benefit there is that we practiced speaking using audio messages, mm. which means that I got to retake right. the same message before I would send that message. Literally, sometimes it would take me 10 attempts before I would say it correctly. There's also, for me, been a gradual ramp up to this. For a while, I was on the app just practicing texting in Chinese for a very long time before I built up the courage to send an audio message. That was actually very scary the first time. And then eventually I moved on to live conversations and then this clubhouse moment, which was good for the giving me confidence in my ability to push to, through the fear. And then like, that made me double down on the existing practice like schemes that I had leading up to the point where over the this past holiday break, I had my longest uninterrupted 100% Mandarin conversation yeah. ever, which was with one of my international language partners who is born and raised like in China, still is in China. And we had like an hour and a half conversation. And that's what ladders me up to the point where right. I would totally try and do a service job. So I would say though that, like how will you approach this for some language you don't know? Like, let's say that, that, that you want to learn Arabic. <laughs> like what, what is your steps? So that's 
also interesting in a different way because there's zero expectation that I know, would know any Arabic. Right. True. I don't look like I would know any Arabic. <laughs> true. I have spent zero time doing any Arabic training. And so I would just own my stupidity. Because right. <laughs> I think people expect that I know zero and then I'd just be like, yes. I know I can zero. <laughs> exactly. I can confirm your expectations, which yeah. feels really good in a weird way. Yeah. It's interesting, Tom, how all this kind of ties back to expectations yeah. that we, other people have or we have for ourselves. But when the expectations are zero, that would be purely like pleasure. I could just fully lead into the how I know literally nothing. <laughs> so just teach me stuff. I'll say things wrong. I expect us to joke about it. I don't know what I'm saying. So that's also fun and liberating in a different way for me. Mm. Yeah. Well, like, how would you structure it? If, if I say, Kevin, look, you have a year to learn Arabic. It's not do or die, but it's important that you do this. What is your approach to, to pragmatically doing that? Yeah, my knee-jerk reaction is to do Bill suggested. <laughs> Still, yeah, yeah. I don't know, because like, maybe <laughs> another way that I think about it is like, it's like prolonged pain or like short but intense pain. But why does it sense. have to be painful? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, it could just, learning how to use has been frustrating for me at times, but it, uh, it's never been painful. It's been disappointing sometimes when I, when I like don't feel progress or parts of it. But I, I really like talking to my teacher. I like talking to my friends in Cantonese. Every once in a while when I'm listening to, to some bit of media and I'll pick up new words I didn't know, that's all, all pretty satisfying. I have this like positive feedback loop. I hope to keep it mostly that. Like, I know there's going to be some negative, but I hope to keep it more 90 positive, 10 negative rather than 90% negative feedback, occasional, like, good job. That is interesting. So, yeah. So, if, if I was going to learn Arabic, I would do a similar kind of rant. At this point, just because I'm more used to language learning stuff in general, first of all, I would not do this overlapping Cantonese. That sounds fucking crazy. But if I was going to switch, I would, I would find a teacher immediately, a private teacher, where it's not like language exchange partner. It's someone that they know not only the subject matter, but they also have a pedagogical perspective, a way of thinking about how to teach. I would probably start doing like an hour a day if I was really serious about this, but I would still definitely not do full immersion with people where I need to perform real tasks at the same time in response to people's questions for me. And I would probably do that for, I don't know, at least, I think I'd want to get like a hundred hours in before I would want to dive into any kind of immersion environment. Because like the, the beginning of the stuff, learning really basic vocabulary, I don't know how well that is served because your brain can really only learn stuff so fast so the the game is basically how do you get to your brain's maximum learning capacity with the minimum pain because any pain past that doesn't actually make you learn faster it just makes you more uncomfortable and sad so it's about finding what that threshold is and i feel like for the beginning parts of it in terms of vocabulary acquisition you're not going to learn a thousand words a day there's just no way your brain can't yeah pick that much new can't information. process that much yeah exactly so that's why i think that the going zero to 100 isn't that useful i might be underestimating how much your brain can handle maybe an hour a day is not really enough but i think if you have an hour a day with a private teacher then that would be really good i i, I do think that people who are like i'm going to spend five minutes on duolingo a day you're probably doing almost nothing you're probably not really learning the language at all yeah you have to find at least this thing people talk about as like the minimum effective dose yeah which is the minimum you can do where it's actually doing something because there's some kinds of things where no matter how much of it you do or how frequently you do it if it's just not intense enough it just won't do anything if you do one push-up a day forever you're not going to get jacked there's just no way so you need to figure out what the what that growth rate can look like and then push on it but it's not clear to me that going full immersion would have learning benefits or if it would just be downside in terms of psychology yeah, I think one thing that's interesting that you pointed out is my model for this mentally is I suck in Arabic and that is a painful state to be in. Like if I cared about learning uh, Arabic I and see, then I see. I see the end state of knowing how to 
speak Arabic as, okay, I can be rid of the pain. Like I'm, I'm good now. And so that's how I conceptualize it. Whereas you are in a state of not okay and you want to progress towards a state of being okay, oh, which is interesting because the way that you described it is much more enjoyable. And what if we viewed the journey not as painful, but the thing that can be enjoyed as we go along the way? Maybe it's okay to suck at the beginning and you don't need to feel pain about that. It's just, yeah, I don't know this thing and that's okay. And yeah. I'm learning the thing and I can make the learning process fun. Exactly. And later I'll be better at it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why, again, this is why I think it's a way more healthy mindset to have. But that's an interesting manifestation of it. Another thing that came to mind was the other reason why in this specific scenario of if I want to learn a language, I should immerse as fast as possible is mm. I also think about it as a forcing function because mm -hmm. you immediately put yourself in a situation where you need the language. I almost think about it as a shortcut or a short circuit to like, I don't really need to think too hard about what the intermediate steps are. Mm. If I immediately make this a need in my life, I'll just be forced to figure it out and view every interaction as a learning opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you're right in the sense that it's not just about intensity. It's also about it building up this really powerful intrinsic motivation. And so then motivation does come from not wanting to look like an idiot, but some of it just comes from you immediately get to see how the new abilities you're developing allow you to affect things in the world. Whereas I think that's one of the failure modes of trying to learn different languages is just it, it's this abstract thing to learn, really learning anything. If you try to learn stuff just to know it, it's just way harder to stay motivated. Whereas if there's a thing in front of you where you're like, I can't do that thing, and I want to be able to do that thing, it's much easier to intrinsically motivate. And being in an immersion environment, the I can't do that thing and I want to do that thing is everything. Like you're like, I can't order food. I can't like make a reservation tonight. I don't know how to call at like, the train station and ask for the times. Like every single thing you naturally intrinsically want to do as a human, you wouldn't be able to do without learning these things. It also means that your learning is much more focused, learning pragmatic skills. That's the other failure mode of learning things for the sake of it or learning in the abstract. It might be that the curriculum path you're being set on does not map onto the real world at all. And this is also why for in the context of building up my software engineering skills, I would always focus on working on projects that I cared about the outcomes of rather than following someone's list of these are the things you should do. Because it, it means it's just if you continuously focus on unlocking new skills that you intrinsically care about, that's a much better engine for motivation. So yeah, like I, I can see the benefits ignoring the, the maximum learning rate question of just building this motivation engine in yourself as well. Interesting. I'm wondering why I feel the need to generate a need. Is it because I don't trust my discipline or, or my own independent motivations? Because yeah, my brain, it's like the, the purest form of I must do this is to create a need for it that I viscerally feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're like creating an environment where survival. Basically. <laughs> yeah, survival and learning the thing are the same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The yeah. purest, strongest form of motivation. No way. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like your uh, part of your motivational engine is like aligning survival with learning and part of mine is aligning fun with learning. Yeah. One of these things <laughs> is more enjoyable of an experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I think that my suspicion is that in each of the paths we're going down right now, we're going to dip a little bit more into the other person's perspective. Converge. Yeah, we'll converge. I think that they're Going down just the fun path, it, it is easy to just ignore the holes in your knowledge that are ultimately important. Yeah. Like to become well-rounded in anything, you, some of the stuff you got to learn, it just sucks. Like it's just not fun to get through, but it unlocks other things down the road that are blocked otherwise. And some of the stuff just can be fun and you got to do both. So you need a motivational engine that's going to push you down both paths. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's my current hypothesis is that maybe you just alternate 
between them a little, little bit. Because mm. there's a world where I think approaching it maybe like 80 to 90% of the time from a pleasure-seeking, fun perspective, first of all, it makes you happier and probably better for your mental health and probably bodes well for just you sticking with the thing longer term. Mm -hmm. But then I do think there are some moments where it's good to light a fire under your ass, yeah. where you have these kind of proving moments of jumping in the deep end for a hot second, but it's okay, after we've experienced the deep end to see what it's like, it's very intense all the way over there. We can come back to the shallower waters with this perspective of what's down the road. And like, I think that continual back and forth, I don't know, that's how I think about it now for yeah. where I want to get to, as opposed to go to the deep end and try not to drown. That's how you're gonna learn how to swim. <laughs> that's literally the approach, right? It's literally go to the deep end, we haven't taught you anything about how to swim, but good luck. And maybe you'll learn how to swim. Is, is that how you learn how to swim? No. Not that I, not, I did like baby classes up until, I don't know, I was seven maybe. So yeah, like, yeah. I, I can not drown, but not that I know how to swim. Right. Yeah. Guess we can call it there for today. Yeah, I have no idea. How, how do people do these yeah, outros? Outros are just like conclusions. Yeah. All right, what, what did we learn today, Kevin? We got issues. <laughs> All right, here, here are some of the things that I think one of the most interesting takeaways for me is recognizing that doing full intensity in something has some upshots I hadn't thought about as much before, just building these really intrinsic motivation engines. But you do have to be careful in that it can also actually build aversion to failure because when the stakes are really high, it's less okay to, to fail. So that's one thing that I'm taking away. What are you taking away? I think the whole, if you want to grow, you have to assume that you can fail. Yeah. Because I've been thinking about this for a while, just because in, in my own career life struggle with my issues. And that, I literally came up with that as we were talking, but it feels like that's a pretty good, I don't want to say conclusion, but like a pretty good frame of mind to, to yeah. take into it. Attitude towards it. Yeah. And we'll see. I'm going to try and live by my words now, obviously <laughs> easier said than done, but I'm going to try did. and embody that kind of going forward. Yeah. Maybe I'll report back in a future episode. I'll be oh, like, yeah. just kidding. No terrible advice. <laughs> Not the way. <laughs> but right now it feels like it's a pretty good thing. Yeah. I'm happy to talk that one through. Yeah. Right. Thank you, dear listeners, whoever you are. I hope that some portions of this rambling discussion were interesting to you. Yeah, if you're still with us, props for making it all the way to the end of the episode. We appreciate you. Have a good rest of your day. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us by leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We would really appreciate it because it helps us grow and lets others find the show. When we're not podcasting, Kevin also makes YouTube videos. And Jamie has a blog. You can find links to these in the episode description. The intro music you heard in this episode was made by Harry Dye. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.